Welcome to those who are joining. This is our first episode for 2022, and today we're joined by Jeff uh, from Upstart, who's, I think, either employee fourth or fifth at Upstart. We'll know more in shortly. Let me do just a couple of housekeeping items. As I said, today is episode 33. We have been doing this for about eight months. We started in April 2021, and uh, the show is just a hobby. So the disclaimer, an important disclaimer that we want to make is that we have full-time jobs within financial services and our employers are not associated with this show and we're also not endorsing any products or providing any financial advice. The intention behind FinTech Cafe is simply to cultivate a community of thought leadership within FinTech. So with that, let's do intros. My name is Ambika and I'm a product manager within the FinTech space. I've been in FinTech for about 10 plus years now and I do this show as a hobby on the side. And over to you, Manisha, for your introduction. Thanks, Ambika. Very excited for the show today. I think we're hitting a couple of firsts here. The first one for this new year, 2022. And Jeff, your first time on an interview. With that, Jeff, could you give us an introduction? Leading business development at the Rising Star Upstart. I would love to hear about you. And the sure. fourth or fifth question. <laughs> sure. So there's a debate about whether I'm the fourth or fifth employee. Our general counsel, who is either the fourth or fifth employee on the other side of that coin, and I, I think she signed first and I started first. So we have an ongoing debate about which one is, is more important for timing. But my background, I, you know, I have a computer engineering degree, so kind of have always been in the technical. I came to Upstart from Google, where I was kind of the first business development employee on what is now Google Cloud. At the time was Google Apps for Domains or Gmail for Domains, I think was the original name. And kind of came here to upstart to run a variety of marketing business development partnership activities. It's obviously going from four or five to 1500. The, the job has changed a little bit over the last uh, nearly decade that I've been here. All right. Thank you. With that, we'll jump into what Upstart does. Would mm -hmm. it be fair to say, Jeff, that Upstart is a marketplace for consumer letting? I know we throw the term around a bit. I wanted to clarify with you uh, if that's the right terminology. And well, not I'm a balance sheet lender. We're, we are definitely not a balance sheet lender. We are really a partner to, to lenders. So all of the loans that come through the Upstart platform are uh, originated by one of our bank or credit union lending partners. Some of those, the banks and credit unions hold on their balance sheet, and some of them are sold into the capital markets, typically because there's uh, a degree of risk, either as we predicted or as, you know, according to their various risk profiles that they're, they're not comfortable holding. So, yeah, I think marketplace is a pretty good description, like how, how we like to think of it. Great. Thank you. And then back to the early days of Upstart and as the fourth or fifth employee or 4.5, tell us a bit about your journey there. Sure. Uh, so maybe the, the core thing to start with is, you know, my mother-in-law at least used to always ask what, what inspires people to leave well-paying jobs at Google to, to join a startup for a lot less money. And I think you got to believe there's something fundamental in the world that is that you can improve. And for us, that was really the belief that many forms of credit are a combination of inaccessible to large numbers of people who, who really are credit worthy, but are not understood to be so, or, or are overpriced, which is kind of the same thing. Really, you've, you've overestimated the risk for some portion of the population. And the belief that a combination of kind of alternative data points and machine learning technologies could improve access to and reduce the cost of credit for many Americans. That was really what brought us into this. We launched at the core a platform that enabled our lenders to offer unsecured uh, loans, the uh, kind of 
think of them as ten or twelve thousand dollar mostly used to refinance credit cards. And, and I think the and that was kind of what we what we got to do. We now have a, a number of other kinds of financial products we offer, but that was the crux of it for us was getting into those kinds of loans and, and figuring out that so many people who had maybe a 640 or 660 credit score, which in a traditional financial services world would mean unacceptable levels of risk were actually were very quite credit worthy and that we could actually identify who they were. So I think when you try to step away, so I'll take the next one. And I wanted to ask you, I also have a, some background in personal loans. So how is, what is it that Upstart is doing? How is that different from traditional lending? Or if we, let me ask the question differently. That is, can you tell us a little about consumer lending space and what was happening back in, you know, around financial crisis and then 2012 when you guys started? Why personal loans? Yeah. And so those are two kind of separate questions. Back, if you think back, these kinds of loans have been available for, from banks for, for many years, really, under the name typically signature loans. But they were never a huge business for most banks and credit unions. And then when the financial crisis came, you know, in 2008, really, they, they, they pulled away almost entirely. And that void was mostly filled by a variety of fintechs. And so you saw this really dramatic shift in unsecured lending, where fintechs became uh, the dominant players. Banks still did some, credit unions did a little bit more, but mostly fintech stepped in. And I think that the core, the kind of coincidence of things that happened was that fintechs were leveraging digital distribution. And the thing you got to remember about a $10,000 loan is there's not a lot of money in it, right? Compared to a mortgage or an auto loan, the dollar sizes are smaller. And so the ability to reduce the cost was really important in making it available to more consumers because all of a sudden you could actually profitably make a loan at, at slightly higher risk rates with reasonable interest rates because you could reduce costs. And that was kind of the core inside of what you might call online lending 1.0. Um, but I would argue that those businesses fundamentally reduced costs through distribution, lack of branches, maybe automated underwriting, but never really tackled the core question of, can we improve on the underwriting results and approve more borrowers? And that's really what brought us into the space and how we kind of got interested to say, hey, we think we can actually not only reduce the cost and simplify the distribution and reduce the cost of branches, but we can actually you know, take a large number of people who are denied credit by banks, credit unions, and traditional fintech lenders who pretty much had very similar credit policies to a bank or credit union and open up credit access to them. And that was kind of the core thing that got us interested and excited in going into the space. But personal loans are very risky. There's no collateral. There's, there are no liens. <laughs> so back in 2012, yeah, why personal loan, I guess? Yeah, well, I think it's if you think about where underwriting and being really smart at understanding the credit risk of a person makes the biggest difference to the business, it's it's the riskiest category of lending, right? Uh, and it's particularly unsecured lending because if you misunderwrite a, a mortgage because the borrower couldn't make a payment, you get the house. And if you misunderwrite an auto loan, you get the car. Now, sometimes the car might be underwater, but generally with the right LTV, there's not a ton of risk the lender takes on in many ways on those loans, but a place where you're really entirely dependent upon your understanding of a person's capacity and willingness to repay is the unsecured loan. And so that was the place where we felt like if we brought these technologies, we could most greatly increase access. We'd make the biggest difference to consumers, to the economics, to the lender. At the same time, we always had a vision that the same fundamental truth is true in every kind of consumer lending. And that's why we've now expanded into auto refinance lending. We're expanding auto purchase lending. We're looking at things like small small dollar lending where these technologies make a ton of sense. But that unsecured loan was really the place where 
what we thought we could do uniquely well was going to really impact consumers' experiences, the accessibility of credit, and the, the economics for the lenders most dramatically. And that's why we kind of, it may seem like the riskiest place to start, but when you're doing something like what we were doing, the riskiest place is, is kind of the best place. All right. Thanks. So moving on to the Pondo story, that's always interesting, Jeff. Uh, I mean, I think you've given us a sense for what Upstart does, but uh, there seems to be a common thread uh, between some of the earlier employees. Uh, so we'd love to mm-hmm. hear the Pondo story there and how you all met each other. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Dave, I like to say, uh, Dave, the CEO of Upstart, uh, hired me into Google and then he hired me out. So Dave and Anna, our co-founder and head of product, or sorry, and head of operations, all came from Google where we had uh, known each other uh, somewhat. Paul, uh, our co-founder and head of product uh, and data science was someone, he was one of the original Teal, Peter Teal, 20 under 20 fellows who was offered uh, $100,000 by Peter Teal to drop out of Yale and got connected to Dave. And um, interestingly, the, the first product we offered really wasn't a loan at all. We were uh, kind of the pioneers in what is today uh, and what we coined the income share agreement space. There's a whole history behind that, but you know, the belief that there was a, a better alternative to a loan, which was an issuance of money to an individual and the repayment being tied as a fixed percentage of their income for a fixed duration of time. Really something was used primarily to finance education. That was the first product we had, still with the belief that many people were being overcharged for student loans and that we could better align incentives through a different financial structure. So a lot of our IP carried over, but that was kind of the initial thing that we came into the world to do. And that's how, how we all met. And I think Allison had been at PayPal was introduced to Dave as we were, you know, I, I think some fintechs take the approach of, I've heard somebody say once, like fly under the regulator's radar as long as you can and, you know, just kind of try not to get noticed. And we took a very different approach, which was we, we approached the regulators, the CFPB in particular, about the use of AI and machine learning and credit before we partnered with the first bank, originated the first loan through the platform. And so one of the first hires we looked to make was to find a good general counsel who could help us navigate those waters. And that's where Allison Nickel, our, our general counsel, came in. So we were, I think it's very unusual for a fourth or fifth employee at a startup to be a general counsel, but Allison joined us early and, and all five of us are, are still here, actually, almost a decade later. So it's been a, it's been a pretty great story. I think we've complemented each other well and have a, a diversity from the young college dropout kind of prototypical Silicon Valley to some kind of more seasoned operators and experienced experienced folks from Dave and myself. We have a few gray hairs in the founding team, not just not just the young kids. So it sounds like a really inspiring starting team, inspiring enough to get some pretty big names as investors out of the gate with Aaron Schmidt and Mark Cuban, Mark Benioff to begin with. So what's the story there? Like what got their attention? Well, I think some of that is uh, history that Dave in particular, but many of us had in Silicon Valley. I mean, Eric and Google Ventures was was an early investor as well, were have a propensity to invest in, you know, startups founded by ex-Google teams. And so we kind of fit that bill. And, you know, there's a a lot of good name investors on our decks. But I will say, I don't feel like we ever felt comfortable invest raising funds, both from a, you know, if there's a story where people are throwing term shirts, sheets at you as a founder and lots of like, that was never our experience. And also, I just don't think it was a natural activity for most of the founding team. We're much more comfortable building the business and trying to drive results than we are going and and telling our story and raising money. So those were really personal connections, people we knew that wanted to take a a risk 
uh, on in the early days on the thing we were doing. But I would say, you know, for, for any founders out there who say it's hard raising money, it, it is. And even successful companies often have trouble raising money all the way through the process. And that was certainly our experience was it never, never felt like it was easy. And we didn't, we certainly didn't have like 10 term sheets competing for each other for funding the way I sometimes read on Twitter and go, man, I must, we must've done this wrong. Cause it seems like it's supposed to be easy. Uh, and it was never easy for us. And then moving into some of the, the hard work, building out the customers <laughs> and partnerships, how did, how did you find that first set of customers and the business product market fit? I mean, I mean, so if you go back to what I said about income shares, you can understand that we like we had the wrong product, the wrong market, the wrong go-to-market strategy. Uh, and I think one of our investors once said, you know, the, the most successful startups I know, their founding teams are like product market fit, heat-seeking missiles. And so it's just a lot of trial and error. And I think, you know, so much of life is there's like, I always find this as competing aphorisms, right? Like insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result or you know, it's supposed to change or persistence is brilliance, right? Like which of those is true? And I think a lot of the art is figuring out when, which of those applies. And so for us, it was a lot of seeing what works, looking at the data and optimizing for, for speed and, and particularly speed to learning, right? Like how can you cut down your launch time and learn 80% of what you were going to learn with the big thing with a much smaller thing, because that learning informs the next thing you do and the next thing you do. So whether that was, you know, getting out the door with the first set of income share agreements and then saying, Hey, we don't we don't see the growth in this market, but our technology seemed to apply to all these loans. We were really using our technology to to underwrite estimated income for individuals, and so we said, hey, if we know their estimated income and risk of income, that we got a pretty good sense of cash flow and repayments of loans. Could we apply it there? So we made that shift. We actually, for a while in our early days, thought we would be a pure digital marketing shop, and you know, no direct mail. Turns out we were wrong about that uh, too, and we do direct mail now as well. So I, I think a lot of that is just find a partner you know, get to learnings as quickly as you can, be honest in your assessment of what you've seen, whether what you're doing is working or, and then get back to, you know, iterating on the next thing really rapidly. And I, actually, maybe one funny story for me is, you know, Dave hired me in part when I came on, he said, look, we, we think these income share agreements, university distributions make a lot of sense. I had run, you know, Google Cloud for, for education for, for a number of years at Google. So I had a deep relationship in, in the university space. And we said, this is great. Kids come out of college. We'll get these loans and we'll go through career offices. And, you know, I, I spent four months trying to make those partnerships happen. And I went into to my boss's office and I said, Dave, uh, I think you hired me to do something we shouldn't be doing. Uh, we need to be doing something else. And he said, what? And I said, I don't know. Well, now your job is to figure it out. Uh, and so I think that kind of just you know, go out, figure out what your hypothesis is, figure out how quickly you can test it, and then be honest with yourself about what you're learning and, and iterate quickly to the next thing. If you can do that on a rapid cycle, that's how you find these things. Because nobody comes into this with a, a fully conceived go-to-market strategy that works. We all have to iterate our way to it over time. And the faster you can iterate and learn, the, the more successful you're going to be in that. So going off of that, Jeff, what was that time, I guess, that inflection point in your company's journey where you felt that you had found your product market fit, having iterated a few times? Well, I'll give you two points where we found like we okay. had found something. So the first was, you know, we had these income share agreements and as silly as it sounds now, we've done, I don't know, two or $3 million or something like that. Uh, and we said, well, should we switch over to loans and, and start doing loans? Do we do both? Do we just switch over? And it, it was it was a gut wrenching kind of call because it felt in some ways like you were giving up. Like, did we did we, we raised a bunch of money and, and spent it and not built anything? Was this thing going to work? Were we entering a crowded market? Lending club and Prosper in particular were, were, 
were decently sized at that time and we thought we were differentiated, but, but who knows? And in the first month or two, we started doing more per month than we had done in a year and a half of income shares. And that was the first one we said, hey, there's something here, like <laughs> this is working. And that was, was really good validation for us. And the other, I think, you know, another great product market fit when you start to see things take off. We had, you know, when we started, we really had a vision of the underwriting, the assessment of risk being misaligned between true risk and what most lenders were seeing. And we said, hey, that's a broken part of the credit system. We think we can fix that. And then, you know, at some point we, you know, we were doing these things. And when we started every loan, we had a phone call with the borrower. We had an ID uploaded. We were, we were doing all this verification for fraud prevention, for income verification, you know, knowledge-based authentication calls. And at some point we said, this stuff's really expensive. What if we just like took a couple small loans and didn't do some of that, you know, where they didn't look risky and where it seemed like everything matched up. We just, we just like, didn't ask them for any documents. What would happen? And when we did that, you know, we said, would we see deterioration in the credit performance? Would we see improvement in the conversions? And we saw somewhere between a two and three X lift in conversions and an improvement in the credit performance. And that, and that was another moment where we said, well, shoot, like there's something there. Uh, and we really started taking a lot of the machine learning and AI resources we had applied to credit and saying, how can we get to reducing friction in that onboarding experience to reducing the documentation required to reducing the time to availability of funds for our borrowers. And I think at that moment, you start, you know, you start to see these moments where things just tick up and, you know, there's, there's a nice up into the right grasp, but there's really a lot of moments where things elbow and take a turn and you can kind of feel it and sense like, Hey, we, we made this change and it's really working and we're really seeing that happen. And those were two and then there's a lot of other moments that are just this month is 5% better than last month in these three areas. And those things add up over time. So I do think there's a combination of your, you, you feel the little stuff adding up over time. And then you find these moments when you can really make large changes and see real changes in the trajectory where you can kind of see the elbow in the curve, if you will, where it goes from decently steep to much steeper. And, and when you see those moments, it's pretty exciting. And frankly, kind of terrifying because you, A, you don't know if you screwed up and this thing is you know, happening because you're messing up your credit and B, it's just, you know, when volume increases that dramatically, it's, it's a little bit of a hold on all hands on deck. What are we going to do about it now uh, scenario? So that's fun, but it's also a little bit scary, to be honest. Right. I like that story. Thank you for sharing those two examples. It's it at least to me is reflective of how your team truly is like very technical focused that just brought that tech mindset into a financial problem of like, let's solve it. Let's improve iteratively. Like we don't have to have a big grand scam, you know, plan on day one. We can do it one at a time. So I like that. I want to, we have about, I think, eight minutes left in the moderate session. So I want to definitely hit on the credit decisioning model. Upstart mm. has an artificial intelligent, you know, platform for credit decisioning. Very high level, very curious. How is your platform different from traditional credit score model, which relies on FICO, for example? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, our, the high level for us, we use a number of, you know, what you can call AI. I don't always love the term AI. I think it, it tends to conjure up images of like Hal and the Terminator and some humanoid form of, of an intelligence. I prefer machine learning, but you know, we use a bunch of AI or machine learning models and about 1600 variables uh, to predict likelihood of default, likelihood of prepayment on specific loan obligations. So I think, you know, if I think about what we do differently than most traditional models, we're looking a lot deeper in the credit file. Many lenders are looking at the credit history of an individual and kind of summarizing it in a three digit number. Right. And we are looking at something like eight or nine hundred pieces of data from that. And it just turns out when you look at those very granular things, allow them to interact in really interesting ways. My simple example there is always if I have a really high credit score, but a really high credit utilization, 
or a really high debt to income ratio. Those things, some of those are good, some of those are bad. How do I weigh them off against each other? It's just, it turns out there's a lot of ability to improve accuracy in looking at the nuance of those things. And so that's kind of the core of where that model comes in. I think the other challenge I always see in a traditional credit score based model is, you know, a score is a universal signal about an individual. But the risk of an individual is very, very different for different kinds of lending products, right? And so we do loans from anywhere between 1,000 to, to 50,000 for our partners. And those are just very different credit risks. And it's not like I'm necessarily a medium risk for both. I could be a very good risk for a $2,000 loan and a very bad risk for a $50,000 loan. And that nuance gets lost when you try and average someone's credit risk to a, to a singular number that runs from you know multi-million dollar mortgages down to you know a five hundred dollar credit line, and so we think that trying to really specify to the product uh, and then predict in a much more granular way, you know what the likelihood of default and frankly the likelihood of prepayment is for someone, you just see a ton of room for improvement. And I think that's just it's a different approach that people have in terms of looking at credit, really looking at each individual credit file and, and the accuracy performance. And so it's produced really dramatically better results. And there's our, our results are in a lot of places public through securitizations and other things. But the accuracy of the model is, is really much, much better. And that makes a huge difference in, in how much, you know, how many people we can approve for credit and how much we have to charge them to recoup the losses and earn the, you know, the return that, that our partners are looking for. Got it. So are you then just using credit information better than your traditional or your competitors? Yeah. Or are you also so, using like, like, you know, where did you go to school? Where do you live? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, are, you have a competitor that actually didn't use FICO score and they instead relied on information such as education, school degrees, yeah, and yeah. modeled and proved to be sturdy. So I'm just curious we, how you're, how you're doing your part. I won't comment on their model. I'm familiar with the incident you're talking about, but I will say, you know, we're in true data science fashion, we're kind of both and, right? Like we would just say there's a ton of untapped value in the credit file. And we do, do a lot of work to take advantage of that. We do ask a bunch of questions that are not looking at things like level of education, type of degree and in institution, you know, occupation, industry, those things. And, and those turn out to be quite helpful. Some simple examples from that that are, that are different than what I think people think of. Because I think a lot of people hear that and they think, well, you go to Harvard and you get a great rate. And it turns out that like, while Harvard is certainly a beneficial to most people, a lot of students at Harvard already have great credit scores and great credit histories. And it, it doesn't change your assessment that much. But for a lot of people going to college who maybe don't have a stellar credit history, who didn't have parents who were helping them establish credit from an early age, you find that understanding their educational background actually gives you a really good signal about their future employment uh, prospects and opportunities and can be very helpful. Some other examples of that that I always like to look at are like nurses, you know, firefighters, public school teachers are people whose profession tends to indicate a stability of income that might uh, not be reflected in the volume of income or their credit history. And so you start to see really interesting things like that. So we do combine kind of some alternative points of data with a deeper look at the credit file. And then of course, machine learning helps you when you've got, we have a little over 1600 variables in our model today in our in our core credit model. And, you know, when you have that many variables, you really need a sophisticated modeling techniques to be able to, to make sense of how many data points there are. And, and that's where those things come in and really help you understand how much should one variable matter in the context of all the other variables, because you're really looking at each individual uniquely. And so some variables are important in this case and not important in that case, because they may not say anything different than what the other, you know, 1,590 some odd variables were saying. Nice. Thank you. 
And then one last question, credit decisioning, because you're using AI, you know, fair and responsible mm -hmm. banking laws are strict in the United States. So how do you ensure your AI models are not biased? Yeah, so when I said we went to the CFPB, I'll tell another funny story here. We did that in 2014. We went and had conversations with the, with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. We were newbies at this space, so we went into the enforcement office in San Francisco instead of calling the innovation office in D.C., which turns out was probably the better place for us to start the conversation. You don't usually walk into the enforcement office and go, hey, we got a question. But that's what we did. Uh, but we really said, look, we, we think that we can improve access to credit for all demographics. We can approve more Americans in every demographic category. We can lower the cost for Americans in every demographic category. Help us understand how to think about applying the fairness standards in the context of a model like ours and the data points like ours. And so we set out to work with the Bureau on developing a monitoring and testing routine from the very early days. That resulted in a testing process and a compliance program that we developed in conjunction with the Bureau that they have been monitoring ever since. The issuance of, from the Bureau at that point, they issued us what's called a NOAC, which is kind of a policy tool to say, hey, we've looked at this thing and, and, and we're, we don't see any issues based on the review we've done. And so we, we got the first of those letters, I want to say in 2017, and the renewal of that. 2020, you don't quote me on the, well, I guess you, you're, you're recording this, but I think those are the dates, but I'm not 100% sure on the, on the exact uh, timelines, but have been issued one and, and then a renewal for a, a second no action letter from the Bureau. So I think there is there are ways to test. There are ways to be compliant. Testing is critical. You, you want to be testing. One of the beauties of what we developed with the Bureau is it's a statistical algorithmic test. And so we can run it on every update to the model and understand, are we still meeting the standards and are we seeing any issues? If we're seeing issues, maybe let's not use the new model and evaluate why. And so that's that's a program we've been doing for years with the Bureau on our own. And I think there are really are ways to test. And what you find, what the Bureau found is that not only can you meet the fairness standard? But very importantly, the reason the Bureau wanted to engage with us is you can actually expand access and lower the cost of credit to every kind of American, but particularly to protected classes of Americans. And that's a huge uh, priority for the Bureau to enable. And so I think it's in many ways, the question is, why are more people using these kind of techniques where they can actually go out and start lending to communities that had to cut off because because these technologies make it possible to figure out who in that sub 700 FICO range is a good credit risk. And it turns out when you cut off at 700, a lot of you know traditionally disadvantaged communities have credit scores that are in that range. And so you disproportionately impact them with a more traditional hard cut approach. And so I think, you know, my question is kind of why aren't why are more people going out saying, how do we how do we actually find the goods in here? Because that has a, a disproportionate positive benefit on those communities. We agree. So we're technically out of the moderate session, but I do have a last question and then we can open up to the audience. And that is, you guys went public. I see Dave in the audience. So thank you, Dave, for joining. Congratulations on an amazing IPO. You guys went public about almost 12 months ago. It's been a great ride for 2021 for you guys. So what's next? <laughs> what does the next chapter for Upstart look like? I also wish I had the IPO story like you guys, but I'll still cheer you guys on. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. So I you know, I, I got to be careful because when my legal team saw that I was doing this, I said, you know, you can't say anything about what's coming up next before an earnings call because, you know, now that we're a public company, you don't get to just go around saying all the things you'd <laughs> like to do. So I, I can't give you a lot of thing, a lot of specificity around what's next for us. But I do think you can generally think that the technologies we've built around understanding credit risk better and allowing us to improve, you know, approval rates and, and lower the cost of credit for people. And then secondly, to lower the friction required to complete an end-to-end -end borrowing process, right? Things like KYC and the case of auto technologies to, to do lean perfection, right? Like those things are really hard and every kind of credit 
has problems of misunderstood credit risk and extra friction in the process that ought to be able to be eliminated. And so generally, we're looking at how we can apply these technologies to any kind of lending. Obviously, we've gone from unsecured loans to now auto lending. And I think you, you could just look out across the consumer and even small business credit landscape and say, hey, these are problems that exist everywhere. And those are all things we want to tackle. And it will be a question of, of when and how you know, we, we get to them. But that's kind of you know, what, what we view is that we're you know, I guess Jeff Bezos says it's always day one. And I think we have some of that same thing, which is like, it just feels like so early innings in what we're doing. You know, we're, we're touching, you know, this one product that's such a small part of the consumer, even the consumer landscape in the U.S. We're only in the U.S. We're only in this one product or maybe two products now, but really a bulk of our business still in one. So it's, you know, I, there's just so many places for us to go apply this. It still feels like the very early days of leveraging these technologies to impact the credit markets and, and accessibility of credit for consumers. I like that. It's just day one. Okay, so with that, we're open now for the audience. If you'd like to come up on stage and ask a question, again, there's an icon on the bottom right. If you click on that, either Monisha and I, we're moderators, we can bring you up on stage. And at that point, you can share your thoughts and or ask your question from Jeff. If you're not able to speak, we can also read the question for you. You can use the back channel option for that. So at the bottom right, you'll see an airplane icon. If you click on that, that will give you access to either message me or Manisha and we can read the question on your behalf. Remember that sh the show is being recorded, so we will ask you to say your name. Uh, if you are sending us your question for us to read out for you, we will also be reading your name. So with that, over to you, Eileen. Welcome on stage. If you want to introduce yourself and then share your thoughts. Hi. Yeah, thank you so much. This is a great um, topic, great discussion. Jeff, Manisha, super appreciate it. Yeah, my name is Eileen. I'm also uh, here on my own time. And, and I work uh, with Ambika. Well, you know, my, my, my current role is, is really focused on that kind of accessibility that you're describing mm. just in general in fintech, you know, just thinking about how do we use technology to, to improve people's lives. But I do also have a background in hedge funds and it's really fascinating to me, you know, some of the topics that cross those boundaries around the utility, thinking about, you know, a better way to debt, you know, on, or find mm -hmm. different uh, values for debt. And I was just really curious, and I'm always kind of curious, how, how you stay focused on, you know, kind of having a, you know, a mission or a purpose around the utility of, of your, your algos or your, you mm -hmm. know, your kind of purpose at the firm versus kind of using that same quantitative model to just go out and, you know, with an arbitrage, like an information arbitrage, right? Yeah, you kind yeah. of go into the consumer. And I'd just love to hear, you know, how you sort of stay purposeful in that, or do you get pushed and pulled? Or that's basically my question. Thanks, and I'll, I'm done speaking. Thanks, Eileen. It's a, it's a great question. I think every financial services business, there was an article a couple of years ago about someone who was in one of the large credit card banks, and they, you know, came in idealistic and then realized they felt like they were playing a video game and turning Dobbs and Niles done. Uh, knobs and dials to like optimize revenue and, and we're hurting consumers. I think it's so easy in financial services to get to lose the forest for the trees. So, you know, for us, it's we've always started whenever you're in a marketplace business with two sides, right? We have kind of lenders on one side and consumers on the other. You have to pick which side is your core. Uh, and for us, it's definitely consumers, right? Where we are, we, we came into the business to help consumers. And that's kind of our, our true north. And so I think we, we keep that lens on things. Our co-founder, Anna, sometimes I think Dave has described as the kind of heart and soul and conscience of the company. So I think uh, that helps. We do, we do simple things like every week we, at our all hands meeting called TGIF, we read out a borrower review of the week and 
we have a channel where we look at different reviews on Trustpilot or directly to us, uh, feedback from consumers who have used the experience. And I think having that kind of focus on the consumer experience is really important and you have to find ways to maintain it because it is easy to kind of go, hey, we could twist this Nile here and make some more money at the cost of some people. And, and you know, that's it can be a slippery slope and, and you want to make sure that you know what your true north is and you have some internal mechanisms to keep you staying true to it. Thank you, Eileen. Tammy, hi, welcome back. If you'd like to introduce yourself and then ask your question or share your thoughts. Hi, good evening. Tammy Fleming, Financial Services, uh, focused on innovation, emerging tech, and risk management. And thanks, Ambika and Manisha, for uh, hosting this. And Jeff, great discussion. And I think Ambika uh, mentioned your IPO. I just wanted to call that out. Congratulations on that. You were Thank Wall you. Street's darling in uh, 2021. <laughs> we'll, we'll skip looking at December, but I know that you're still, you're still a number of companies are rating you a buy for 2022. Just two, three quick questions. But first question, as an op entrepreneur, you know, trying to launch this business and get it going, you know, <laughs> Are there any lessons learned that you have from doing the IPO because now you're, you know, accountable to regulators, the public? Are there things that maybe you wished you did differently or waited on or was it the, the right decision at the right time? Oh, God, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think from the things we've done, I think we got, I'll say we, we, we were lucky. and I don't know that we, we felt it at the time, but because we have partnerships with a number of of banks and credit unions, they had pushed us down the path of being relatively IPO ready in terms of the kinds of oversight and governance that we needed. And I think at the mm -hmm. time that felt like a, a pain in the rear end. And in retrospect, it probably prepared us well for what was coming. But I think you got you to gotta look at the IPO. There are pains in that when you become a public company. And the IPO is like a celebration, right? But the reality is it's, it's the beginning of your journey as a public company. And there's a lot more oversight and scrutiny but as as our CEO likes to say, now you get to play in the big big leagues, right? And you're yeah. yep. you're on a bigger stage, just bigger opportunity that comes with cost. Um, but those costs, I think, are worthwhile. But I do think you want to wait until you're at a stage, a scale, and a maturity of business where you feel like that trade off is worthwhile. Because when you're early, it can be killer. And if you wait too late, you, I think you miss some opportunity and some leverage from being public and the and the the validity that comes with that, particularly in financial services right? The transparency. So people can look at our public financials. And when a bank is trying to do due diligence on us, it's a lot easier uh, when you're a public company in many ways. So I, I think we, I think we timed it pretty well, but there are, you know, you got, you got to be careful about what, when the right moment is for a given company. Okay, good. Interesting. And then just two follow-up questions kind of on the capital market side. So you made an investment in Tala which is mm -hmm. uh, mobile technology and data science. Was that just to enhance your current capabilities or what was the decision uh, behind that? Oh, the decision behind that really, to me, Tala, for those who aren't familiar, Tala does very small dollar loans in emerging markets. So think, you know, tens of dollars to hundreds of dollars in, you know, Mexico, the Philippines, Kenya, and I think India is our fourth market. And for us, they're really kindred spirits in the sense of believing that technology and data science and underwriting can help improve credit outcomes and thereby expand access. And they're doing it in a bunch of geographies that we have <laughs> no insight into. And so for us, we oh, thought okay. there was a, 
a synergy mm -hmm. of things we know that they could learn from, things they know that we could learn from, and the ability to kind of uh, help them, uh, but also watch them experience going into different geographies, different regulated markets that we thought was really interesting. And so that was something we felt like was uh, was really aligned with what, where we want to go and what we want to do, but a very different approach to it. So it kind of made sense to us to to get involved with them in that way. Okay. And then, thank you. And then the last one, Jeff, the um, Prodigy acquisition that you had, was that mm. specific to give you leverage in the auto loan market? Or again, is that full capability enhancing your product line? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So Prodigy, uh, again, for the audience who may not be familiar, was an acquisition we made. And there really are a company now now called Upstart Auto Retail. So that group is really focused on improving the buying experience of cars in the context of traditional dealerships. And so they have software that enables both e-commerce, but also an improved kind of selling experience for deals where a customer walks into a dealership and is buying a car and evaluating trim options and aftermarket warranty packages and other things with a sales rep. And so I think one of the fundamental things we understood was that the ability to optimize the finance experience. And by that, I mean something as simple as, hey, I thought I wanted the Camry, but now I'm looking at the Corolla. What happens to my, my loan payment if I change? Mm -hmm. It's yeah. actually really difficult to do in the context of the current software capabilities, both for the dealership-oriented software, but also for the integration between that software and the lenders. And so we really felt like if we wanted to provide the optimum financing experience, it needed to be deeply embedded in, in, in a great buying experience for those automobiles. And so we saw in Prodigy, a company that had really built what we thought was the best in class commerce software for dealers. And, you know, they had kind of always had a vision of, you know, working with lending and deeply integrating lending. And, and we wanted a deeply integrating lending into the buying process. And we thought, well, that's kind of a match because, you know, we're doing the thing that, that they don't have, but think is important. And they're doing the thing that we don't have, but think is important. And so that made a lot of sense to us. And I think it's going to help us really accelerate the ability to bring a better lending experience into the car buying experience. Okay, great, thank you. Well, I wish you continued success in 2022. And this is Tammy and thank I've been you. speaking. Thank you, Tammy. Thanks, Tammy. We have some couple of questions actually that's in the back channel. So Vinay and Poonam, if it's okay with you, I also wanna take some questions from the back channel. First one I have is from Anand, he's in the audience and he used to lead personal loans at SoFi and his question, sorry. Here we go. How has capital mar capital markets reacted to the loans generated by Upstart? Mm. Sorry, let me start again. How has capital markets reacted to the loans generated by Upstart, especially in the lower FICO scores? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, first of all, you know, you guys have a great stadium uh, that you picked up the naming rights for. I just visited the other day. SoFi is, is a fabulous stadium. It, it's a great question because, you know, obviously when when Upstart's model is making predictions of risk of a loan. Those predictions are in some ways only as good as the people willing to, you know, actually front the money and, and trust those predictions in the market. And certainly in the very early days, there was some skepticism that we had built a better mousetrap. And so we did a number of things, including holding a, a number of, of these loans, buying them in the capital markets ourselves. So we had a risk alignment with with our partners who were, who were holding loans because we, we were holding some that helped them kind of get comfortable that we knew what we're doing. But, but frankly, the reality is that people have placed a premium on, on the loans that are, that our models underwrite, particularly the lower FICO loans for a period of time. But the 
you know, over time, data data tells a story. And the story is that the loans that um, Upstart predicted to be low risk, even when they're low FICO, are indeed low risk. And the loans that Upstart's models predict to be high risk, even though they're high FICO, are indeed high risk. And so you see that playing out in terms of the loss rates and the securitized pools of Upstart loans versus what maybe a, a ratings agency predicted, where they might have predicted a certain thing and we're coming in well below their predictions. They of course, the ratings agencies mostly relying on traditional credit score based underwriting, and they're overestimating losses, and people can see that. So I think it, it certainly wasn't instantaneous, but I think we've earned the right for people to believe our modeling over time because we've just shown the results for it to be accurate. So that's it's a non-trivial problem when you're getting started because you might say, you know, an investor might come and say, hey, we'll buy these loans, but we want them at nine points return, uh, and we're buying a, a more traditional underwriting at seven points return, and, and you've got a two-point you know, disadvantage in cost of funds. And that's really hard to overcome. But I think over time, we've really proven our models to be effective. And so the capital markets are, are coming around and accepting that. And that's just a matter of data and performance over time. Nice. So you have performance to support. One other question yeah. I would I want to take from the back channel, and then we'll come back to you, Vinay. This one's from Kiran. She leads credit risk at Figure Technologies. And she's asking, around your credit decisioning model. And she's saying, how do you differentiate yourself today as a lot of lenders in the space of consumer lending are using machine learning underwriting models? Uh, so that's probably a question more detailed than we can get into in a, in a, in a podcast uh, and a little bit close to our IP. But I do think that uh, everybody knows now that uh, machine learning AI is like something everybody wants to put on the name of their startup to say they're doing it. And there are ways to do it that are effective and there are ways to do it that aren't. And I think there's a lot of magic. It's not like there's a simple apply machine learning to problem button that you click and 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 you solve the problem and everybody gets it the same way. There's a lot of effort that goes into doing that well, whether it's feature engineering, whether it's things we've had to do to the, the core capabilities of different modeling types to make the kinds of predictions we wanna make. There's a lot of effort that goes in there. Ultimately, that shows itself in terms of performance of your credit over time. And so I think we'll, be in the marketplace comparing our credit with partners versus anybody else. But but I do think that, you know, our data team would tell you that we are in the early stages of, you know, optimizing even our models after a number of years and a lot of effort. There's still a long way to go and a lot of things we can do to improve our predictions. And I think that that's still will, will give us some time for differentiation versus others. I'm sure people are going to realize that what we're doing is working and and come try to... <laughs> come try to come after us. But, uh, you know, there's just a big difference between being the best in the world at doing it and, and not, we'll see, Dave, Dave is in the audience and he's telling me I should tell you all that uh, Serena Williams and I both play tennis, but I don't like my chances in a match. I did. Uh, and I, so I think there's a, there's a, there's a big difference between, you know, what I think we're doing and what others are, are calling machine learning. <laughs> That's a nice response. Okay. So let's go next to Vinay, who's here on stage. So Vinay, if you want to come off mute. Introduce yourself and then share. Yeah, thank you so much, Ambika, for this opportunity. So my name is Vinay, and I'm in, based out in Toronto, Canada. And I, I work in the entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship space here in Ontario, connecting the dots. I think of me more like a modernized version of a telephone operator. So, so Jeff, great, great, great uh, job on the on the company. As you know, been tracking it quite some time. A uh, couple of questions, and the important one being, you know, your, your partnership with Credit Karma, which, you know, is also owned with Intuit, and Intuit themselves have transformed, you know, a company, you know, having Mint and Credit Karma, and they're also planning a lot of other things. 
how does that augur well into your growth strategy because you you have you have had a, a you know a tremendous growth so far but going forward you know you have niche only in the auto lending and the personal lending space and then you have intuit you know which, which is a far bigger player how, how does how does that fit into your uh, overall growth strategy i mean i think we have a great partnership with credit karma we continue to have a great partnership with credit karma so i i don't see that necessarily changing i think what we do and what what intuit does are quite different and i think they they gel well together but i'd also tell you like we're not we're certainly not relying on credit karma for our growth and we have a number of acquisition channels from a consumer point of view that that we lean on and so i i i mean i certainly they're 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 an important partner and we work closely with them all the time but it's not an area that particularly keeps me up at night Okay, great. And just one more question, and this is something what I always I always uh, look for is you know the dependency of on on a credit score and especially more so on the FICO score. You know, there is a growing tendency that credit scores do not really capture everything an individual goes through or even the financial character. Mm-hmm. So you have been doing something else. You know, you're looking beyond the FICO score. How, how has that uh, worked for you? I mean, how, how has it been for you? I mean, both from a this perspective, but also from, you know, customer engagement perspective. I'm very curious to know because not many do this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think from a risk perspective, it's been fantastic. We've seen a tremendous ability to be more predictive of risk and thereby improve access and lower costs to, to many, many consumers through the, you know, the analyses we do. I will say we, we did not choose to go out as some didn't say, hey, we ignore FICO. We don't use FICO. I will say we have a number of banks now that, that believe our models enough that they have no minimum FICO score required to lend, right? So say, hey, as long as you think the model is good and the, the loan is good, we don't care what the credit score is. There's no minimum for us. And that's, I think, a real strong statement about the belief that our partners have in our models. And, and that's a real development. I, we don't throw it out because any good data scientist will tell you, you don't throw out data points. You just put them in the model and let the model tell you if they're valuable or not. And and so we, we have FICO score and Vantage score and all, all the different scores as a part of the model. But I think it's tremendously powerful. And I do think, I do think that consumers resonate with that. I mean, we, we've for many years talked about our ability to underwrite people beyond their credit score. And I think there are many consumers who feel like their credit score underestimates them, rightfully so, to be, to be honest, and that they are relieved and, and very happy to find a lender who's willing to work with them beyond their credit score and see the, the, the good that they can be in the world and, and, and the good credit that they think that they are. So we see a lot of goodwill built from consumers who feel like they're declined access from more traditional approaches and can come to one of our partner banks, one of our partner credit unions and get access to often quite reasonably, quite low price credit, despite the fact that their credit score is not, you know, is not great. And, and that's, uh, I think, pr- pays tremendous dividends in terms of customer loyalty. I couldn't agree more. You know, people are really... <laughs> kind of sad with, uh, with their over reliance on credit scores. <clears throat> and I think it's great from a financial inclusion perspective as well, because now you're looking at a more complete picture. So great job, kudos to you folks, and uh, looking forward Thank to uh, more and more growth uh, from your company. Thank you. Thanks, Thank for the- Thanks, Vinay. And Poonam, she just pinged me saying that she's not able to speak, unfortunately. So she asked, she sent me a question and asked me to read for her. And uh, the question is, she said that she watched a couple of your YouTube videos. And I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to ask you about your YouTube video. But the first question is, yes, please tell us about your podcast. And the second question that she really has is she mentioned about partnerships. And she's saying that 
how do you balance concentration risk whereby a significant part of your revenue is tied to one lender? From a business mm. development perspective, curious to get your thoughts. But my question in there is also tell us about your podcast. <laughs> yeah, so my marketing team is going to kill me that I didn't start with the podcast. But I host a podcast called Leaders in Lending. We bring on you know, bank and credit union executives, fintech executives, and really talk about trends influencing the overall lending ecosystem, be it, you know, consumer acquisition, digital experiences, which is obviously top of mind for many, as well as things like credit decisioning. And so that's been, we've been doing that since about March of last year, every week. So, and because, you know, it's a, it's a time commitment to do a weekly, a weekly show, but we've been doing it um, 40-ish episodes and uh, it's been great. I greatly enjoy it. I've, it took me a while to find my groove, but but I, I really enjoy it and I found it interesting and, and we've gotten really good feedback from, from a variety of people, uh, from the listeners. So that's fun for me. It also gets recorded on video and put on YouTube. So this is a nice change of pace, not to have to have my video on and, and be on. I'll have to think about not recording those in the future. And then I do about a weekly uh, LinkedIn video that uh, I think gets uploaded to YouTube as well, just talking about trends and topics we see in lending or in business in general. So those are fun. See, so your question was, how do I think about concentrating? I mean, I think... You have to be, any business executive needs to be thinking about any place that they have concentration risk. For us, that could be on lending partnerships. We now have something like 30 lenders on the platform. So you know, we, we're in a very different place than we were, you know, when we were first started and had only one lending partner. So there's that concentration risk. There, there could be customer acquisition concentration risks, vendor concentration risk. So I just think anytime you're looking at your business, you've got to understand, you know, where do I have? a sole source or a single point of failure? And, and how easy is it? Sometimes you may accept that risk and say, look, I can easily, this is one that's easy to switch out from A to B, right? It's, it's a commodity player. So that's pretty simple. I have a backup. I know how to move things around. So you've got to think about where are your real risks, where are your backups, how, how big a deal is it to your business? And then make sure you're out there looking for partnerships um, to back up anywhere you feel like you have a, a problematic source of concentration risk. And that's, I think every business has, you know, you see this in Apple with supply chain, right? Every business has concentration risks where you have to have some diversity uh, and some kind of excess capacity and backup players to help you in, in certain areas because you don't want to be, you know, sole sourced on any part of your business on, on just one player. Certainly. Thank you. So we have about five minutes. So, and we have two questions. So Dina, over to you. If you could just limit it to one question, I'd appreciate that. Sure. Thanks, Ambika. Hi, uh, Jeff. This is Dina from Authfy, another subprime lending platform. And we work with three banks and I manage the credit and the relationship with the banks and I know how challenging it can be. So I'm curious to hear your story behind how you went from the one bank that you mentioned to 40 or more banks and credit unions and how that scaling worked and also how that how do you uh, are able to successfully manage that relationship and the different needs, different credit criterias, even different regulatory compliance requirements that they might have and managing all that? Thank you. I mean, you know, I wish I could tell you there was an easy answer to how you manage relationships with a with a, a larger increasing number of financial institutions. But the answer is it's just hard work. I do think we built flexibility into our platform to give some control to each of our lending partners. So they have control over things like minimum credit score, maximum debt to income ratio, ge geographies they want to lend in. So, so they have some control that puts kind of, I think of it as guardrails around the upstart prediction model that, that we also offer as a part of that. Uh, and then we allow them to control the pricing based, you know, the kind of how they want to price a, a level of risk that we predicted. So 
those levels of control are really important. I think secondarily, obviously, getting their credit committees, risk committees comfortable working with a model like ours is really helpful to have the kind of history over billions of dollars of originations that we have with other lending partners. And the regulatory engagement is really critical. And then I just think there's frankly, in any market like this, when you're doing something new and different, there is a safety in numbers. So, you know, I sometimes ask people why they're comfortable with FICO for underwriting. Well, everybody does it. I go, well, okay, that's not a great answer, right? But I do think that there's a reality that as you have more and larger institutions adopting your technology or approach, other institutions become more comfortable with it and that there's a kind of safety in numbers. And, you know, we've had lending partners, you know, regulated financial institutions since 2014. They've obviously been through exams. They've been asked by their examiner and their regulators of various questions. We've supported them and having them be able to say, yeah, we've been through an exam. We had some questions. Upstart was able to help us answer them. It hasn't been an issue. Those kinds of things are really helpful. So I, I think it builds in momentum over time. And it, it's, it does take some time and some history to build up that that kind of comfort and credibility in the market. But But that's kind of the only way to do it. There's no fast path to success in that space. Okay. Thank you, Dina. And over to you, Andrew, for the last question of the night. Thank you. No pressure. No pressure. I like being last, though. I want to talk a bit about, if you, if you could, explainability mm -hmm. in, in AI and, mm -hmm. and machine learning. So you mentioned, we, we've talked to it tonight about unintentional bias or the black box uh, of AI and the potential for built-in bias that you may not realize exists in not only upstarts underwriting, but any underwriter who uses AI, to what extent do you use right now or will you use in the future ex explainable AI or explainability so that you as a company know or better understand that your models are in fact not introducing bias that you don't intend to be there, but also be able to, to assure, uh, assure your regulators, your banking partners, or even maybe the individual trying to help them understand why the decision was made for what reasons without maybe revealing your secret sauce or the, mm -hmm. the details of your algorithm that, that make you so successful? Yeah, it's a great question. I like it as one to end on. So I mean, explainable AI is a, is, a, is a big phrase. I would argue that today, the ability for most lenders to explain credit decisions is pretty limited, right? If you're relying on primarily a credit score, you're typically giving, you know, every lender, obviously, in the case of a decline, is required to give an adverse action notice stating the reasons for decline. And typically, you're relying on the reasons given to you by the credit score provider, right? And they say, well, here's the four reasons. And frankly, credit scores are a pretty black box to most lenders, too. Like, I, I don't know anybody who's seen the algorithm behind any of the scores they use in their scorecards or their lending approaches. So I think it's a general problem. I think helping consumers find ways to understand why credit decisions were made and understand them in ways that are helpful to them in terms of improving their odds of, of, of being successful in applying for credit in the future is really important. So we do use a number of techniques to help us provide you know, adverse action reasons that, that really call out what were the key factors driving decisions. That process is a part of our review with the, with the with CFPB. So it's something you know, that the review is not only on fairness, but also on uh, the adverse action process and the explainability of, of decisions in the case of declines where there's really you know, a regulatory requirement that you explain the decision. You don't have to explain why you approve somebody, although I think that's also would be quite interesting for people with, with, with lower credit scores who were able to approve. So I think that's there. I think it's really important that we do that. And I think, frankly, 
there's also a belief that I would just push back a little bit on your statement. Like, how do you get comfortable that you're not introducing bias if you can't explain? And I think the explainability, the sense that I'm going to get a sentence that describes why a certain decision was made or not made is really quite different than the question of can we statistically test in rigorous ways for the introduction of bias uh, is, is important. And, and there, I, I think we've done, I, I would put our fair lending bias testing up there as sophisticated as any I've seen, uh, probably quite a bit more than most that we've seen. And, and that's a place where we've invested a lot. We're really proud of the work we've done to do rigorous statistical testing uh, on on the outcomes of the portfolio. And I think that's really important. It's something that everybody ought to be doing because whether you're using AI or whether you're using credit scores, we all ought to be in the business of expanding access to credit and making sure that people who will pay back a loan are being given access to it and that that's being done in a fair and equal manner across all different demographics of consumers. And, and I think the current world isn't doing that as well as it could or should. Uh, and I think our measurements help us make sure we're doing it to the best of our ability and that we are doing better than we would be doing if we weren't using the AI and the alternative techniques. And that's that's what the data shows. We're able to improve access and lower cost for all demographics. And so I, I think it's a good question. In my mind, it's all about rigorous and, and making sure that you have a good testing regime that, that looks for these things and then making sure you can give consumers a reason for their answer, which is very do- is just as doable, if not more so in AI as it is in a credit score based world, again, which is for most lenders, a bit of an outside black box in terms of what really drove that credit score to be where it was going to be. That's hard to say. And, and we're doing a lot of work to make sure we're providing you know, really good reasons for why our model thinks what it does about the, the risk level of an individual consumer. Okay. Well, thank you, Andrew. And I think that's it for today. Jeff, any parting words from you? If anybody's interested in working at Upstart, what's the best way? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, that's in touch what... with you. You can just go to upstart.com and look for jobs. We, we are certainly all sorts of areas as, as we grow. I think any, any good, good startup business is doing that. If people want to get in touch with me, I'm pretty easy. I'm at Jay Keltner on Twitter and just Jeff at upstart.com for email. So if, if you want to get in touch, uh, please feel free. I, I'm not that hard to get a hold of. And again, okay, thanks for having me. This was, this was a, a lot of fun. It's my first clubhouse, but hopefully not my last. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. Well, thank you so much. Just for audience's awareness, I just pinged him like a couple of days ago saying, oh, I have nobody for January 5th. Can you show up? And he's like, yep, I'm there. So thank you, you so much. You forgot to tell me my boss was going to come though. That was, uh, that was, I didn't realize I was going to be on stage for that, but oh well. <laughs> well, thank you. We appreciate you coming and joining our community. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yep. Well, that's it for, for today. Thank you everyone for joining. And with that, stay safe and stay well. Thank you.